From Koningstein Road in the east to Cetus Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hey everyone, Brett Bradigan, editor of your Ojai Magazine's The Monthly and Quarterly. Our guest this episode, and we're very happy to have him on because the timing couldn't be better, is Bob Salas, author of Unidentified and Faded Giant, and several other books detailing his rather bizarre experiences at Malmstrom Air Force Base in 1967 as a missile officer. But due to a former intelligence officer named Dave Grush, who gave testimony and was reported widely over the past few weeks about the existence of aliens and alien technology, it seemed propitious time to bring on our own local expert, Mr. Salas, for a very enlightening, intriguing conversation. Please enjoy. Thanks, Bob. Uh, really happy to have you here. Lots to talk about. You bet, Brett. Uh, it's a new ball game, I think. Yeah, I'm referring to the David Grush interview with, was it News Nation? And some of the right. fallout from that. Uh, he's a intelligence officer who's asserted quite vehemently and has not been officially contradicted that the U.S. government has extraterrestrial flying vehicles and technology and other things you want to talk and about. And bodies. And bodies, yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, David Grush was uh, uh, working for, uh, I think it was ATIP, which is the um, predecessor to what's now Arrow, the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, which is the official DOD office uh supposedly looking into the UFO questions, or UAP as it's referred. I, I'm a, kind of an old-timer at this, so if you don't mind, uh, I may just use UFO. <laughs> I think so, too. Anomalous, <laughs> aero, aero, uh, anomalous aerial phenomena. Right. And there's other ways to phrase that, too, but yeah, I'm happy right. to stick with the UFOs. I think that's what most of our listeners are, yeah. are comfortable with. Anyway, David uh, Grush uh, came out and and notified everyone that he has submitted a complaint to the IG, Inspector General, the Department of Defense, about mm, being ostracized, I guess, within his job, uh, uh, because uh, he was talking to individuals about what the government had, and he did mention... uh, Alien bodies, uh, recovered craft, uh, uh, and so uh, the the actual complaint to the IG was accepted by the IG, and so we we do have a situation now where the uh, IG is looking into his claims in a, in a serious manner, which is great to see. It's just uh, and, and unprecedented, right? There's never been a, anybody that's got their evidence or their um, eyewitness this far into the public record. Is that right? Well, uh, he is not exactly an eyewitness. What he talked about was speaking with others. uh, Oh, yeah, that's right. uh, 
Uh, and so it's kind of a secondhand word of mouth type of thing. He's not a direct eyewitness. However, the impact he's having is uh, causing um, waves within the uh, DOD, especially because, uh, like I said, the IG has accepted his complaint as something that ought to be looked into. And yeah. uh, the repercussions are now uh, that even uh, Senator Schumer, in fact, yesterday uh, uh, announced that his amendment, which goes into some detail on uh, looking into the UFO question and, and, and uh, requirements, uh, apparently strong requirements in the, um, his amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act of 2024. Um, and he seemed to be very proud of the fact that uh, they're going to be looking into this very seriously. So... We have Schumer, and of course we've got a new hearing coming up uh, next week on the 26th. Uh, this is the House Oversight Committee uh, has agreed uh, to have this hearing uh, bringing forth witnesses, uh, actual witnesses. So the individuals who will be speaking at this uh uh, event uh, have not been announced yet, but hopefully they will be people who have uh, direct knowledge of what's going on. Yeah, and it's a bipartisan uh, effort as well. I think it's important for people to understand. Right. And also in the Senate, Marco Rubio has been uh, advocating for disclosure and, and others. Kristen uh, Gillibrand, also in the Senate. I feel like there's some momentum here. Now, uh, to me, when I first sort of became like, <clears throat> well, this might be real, it was 2017 New York Times front page story about the Navy sightings off uh, San Diego. And uh, what do you remember about that? Because it seemed to sort of, that was sort of the Pandora's box, as I recall. Well, uh, I think the uh, videos that you're talking about are uh, were released, I think, uh, 20... 12, if I'm not mistaken, but the the story didn't catch fire until 2017. Um, uh, that's when the public really saw, the, uh, or, or previous to that, uh, the public saw the videos. Um, I think it was Lieutenant Commander Fravor. Fravor? That sounds right, yeah. Uh, this was off the coast of San Diego, uh, and they were flying a routine mission. Uh, he and... Um, his um, wing wing, per man. wing person, a wing woman, oh, yeah. Alex Diedrich, uh, uh, were uh, uh, well. He he first observed it on his um, his uh, uh, IR uh, scope, um, infrared radar, and uh, and then. <laughs> And then saw it coming out of the water, um, actually, I think. Uh, he went down to take a look. And as he got down close to it, uh, it started uh, flying around him. Yeah, like it, uh, erratically and yeah. super fast as well. Like and then it took off very fast, yeah. yeah. Uh, so fast that he, he just couldn't believe it. Uh, they tried to chase it a little bit, but he, they couldn't catch up with it. And then they... They had a place they were going to rendezvous, uh, a location, um, 
he and his copilot, he and his wing person, uh, were going to rendezvous at a particular location. And when they got there, the object was also there. Really? So he was able to catch it on um, on his um, uh, scope again uh, and actually take video. And that's that's the video most of us have seen. Yeah, I'll post that up in the notes. I just found that fascinating. Now, it's easy to take apart those videos. And, you know, individually, all of these incidents, they can always come up with some kind of, a, well, you know, it was St. Elmo's fire or swamp gas or <coughs> curvature of the earth or some reflection or there's always a million things. But when the preponderance of them like that comes out and the credibility of the witnesses, then it becomes much, much harder to refute Absolutely. Um, and that's why it's important to hear from the witnesses and not just the, uh, you know, talking heads that uh, want to uh, say their piece. But um, there, uh, after Fravor came out, of course, there were other pilots that came forward and, and said, uh, I think Ryan Sprague was one of them, uh, that said, this happens frequently. Mm hmm. Almost daily, I think. Yeah, the, the famous Foo Fighters of World War Two. Yeah, the Foo Fighters. Well, uh, you can actually go back ninety years, almost a hundred years, hmm. to uh, Italy, northern Italy. A crashed UFO uh, was um, recovered under Mussolini. Whoa! And then he assigned. Uh, the great Marconi, the inventor of... Oh, Guglielmo Marconi, the yes. wireless transmission. Oh, really? I, didn't, I did not know that. Yeah. Marconi was assigned to uh, investigate it. Uh, and what's interesting is somehow the, um, the Nazi scientists get a hold of this, obviously. As, as is customary. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, we wouldn't have any Indiana Jones movies. <laughs> and uh, Werner von Braun, no, no other than Werner von Braun, uh, stated to um, uh, Gordon Cooper, one of our Mercury 7 astronauts. Oh, yeah. Gordy, Gordo. Gordo. Uh, uh, because they, they used to meet uh, during, uh, as, you, as you know, uh, Werner von Braun worked on the Saturn V rocket which is the rocket was developed to go to the moon yeah oh just as a little aside do you know we've lost the technology for saturn V rocket rockets we couldn't uh, put a man on the moon now there was like some hurricane in biloxi mississippi in 1982 or something just wiped out all the records right uh, people think you know technology goes you know ever upward <laughs> not always that technology is lost it just seems odd that we don't have a better uh, way to keep keep track of things, which comes back into all this evidence yeah. as well. Like right, somebody right. sitting on a stockpile of some, some really, <laughs> right. Some history blowing up material. Anyway, you, uh, like I said, there, there is a trace going back to that 1933 crash of the UFO. So we're at 90 years now of a government cover up worldwide. And how does that work though? I mean, I just, feel like information wants to get out and maybe it is too but it's been a very successful cover-up and it seems very <laughs> deliberate that they've corralled witnesses and refuted testimony and made people look like uh you know crazy people and 
you know, the disinformation and the psyops that goes around like that. It's got to be a very concerted and expensive effort. Absolutely. Um, and in my book, uh, I think you read, um, Unidentified the UFO Phenomenon, um, I talk about the cabal, an international organization. Mm-hmm. I'm convinced it exists and it has existed probably since Roswell. And, and through in, the Cold the War, US. you think Russians and the Americans were in on it? I think so, yeah. yeah. I think there's been cooperation, um, well, if you could call it that, collaboration uh, on information, uh, uh, not only with Russia, but all over the world. Uh, and I, I point to some evidence, I think, in that, that book. But uh, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at a very well-organized, uh, highly sophisticated, well-funded, and a lot of that funding comes from what, what's called SAPs or, uh, um, uh, you know, dark dark yeah, projects. Black ops budgets. Black ops budgets that uh, Congress can't keep track of, uh, and that money goes for those kind of operations. Um, in fact, um, I think um, we can point to the, the Rendlesham Forest incident. Oh, the one we were talking about in England, uh, East Anglia, the part of England I'm familiar with because I was stationed at uh, RAF Mildenhall Headquarters, 3rd Air Force. Ah, very good. Yeah. Anyway, that RFI case, uh, uh, after the incident occurred, um, and this is documented, that the um, uh, uh, British and the American intelligence agencies came in I know NSA was involved, CIA was involved, MI5. Um, and uh, they um, interrogated the, the, the witnesses, many of the witnesses. And there were dozens, right? It was a And there were dozens of, people, of witnesses. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it was later revealed that they used drugs, um, including drugs that can be used or have been used for... Um, implanting uh, false memories. Oh, yeah, like sodium pentothal and... Uh, uh, sodium amytal is called, amytal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, it's like a truth drug, but it's, it's, has, it's been, has Except been used... Except the opposite. It has <laughs> been used to implant memories. Yeah, absolutely, false memories. And so that shows the sophistication of this kind of cabal operation. They'll do anything to keep those secrets. I wonder if there's a great critical sense of urgency about it, that they know something that could shake humanity to its foundations and that they're, they're doing, that this is, it's <coughs> a good thing that they're doing. I mean, uh, think well, about that. Maybe uh, there's something truly frightening <laughs> on the other side of that information. Uh, uh, there's a very, very small chance to, uh, that their intentions are honorable. Uh, yeah. I think <laughs> just for the sake of argument, though, like I just think of that Twilight Zone episode where the guy gets hounded around and, you know, the aliens are like, you know, and it turns out to serve man. Wait, it's a cookbook. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I think it's more about uh, the power that those secrets have and, um, you know, how seductive power is and also um, the the money that can be gleaned from uh, utilizing these secrets um, yeah the technology uh, yeah the technology right uh, 
So you think they have some? Uh, I don't. I don't even know why it popped up in my head, but there was some engineer in uh, Las Vegas that got inside and witnessed a lot of these things. That you know, as a whistleblower way back when, 15, 20 years ago. I don't know if you remember who I'm talking about. Yeah, he's kind of a character, so he's easy to dismiss. But his accounts are remarkably similar to what everyone else has been talking about. And he said they, they're pretty far along. They have got some kind of anti-gravity drive or something. That their tech, This technology is being successfully reverse-engineered. Yeah, I think you're, you're about. thinking about Bob Lazar. Yes, that's it. Thank you. Um, uh, let's just say I have no doubt that they have back-engineered recovered craft. Yeah. And the reason, one of the reasons is, um, I'll tell you a quick story, I'm, uh, I went to the Air Force Academy and uh, I, I left the Air Force, I think, in 71. And then uh, and after that, I was working for FAA and uh, I happened to be flying north uh, on a commercial flight, ran into this classmate of mine. And uh, we're glad to see each other. We hadn't seen each other since the academy. Yeah, he said he was an upperclassman that used to uh, haze you, the initiation rituals. That's a different the one. Ple- that's, that's, that's a, a different, different one. one. That's a different <laughs> story. But this story, <laughs> uh, this guy I went to, it was in the same squadron, same class, and uh, it was good to see him. And so he kind of embraced in the middle of the aisle there. He was going back to the restroom, and I was going back to my seat. And he said... You'll never guess what I'm flying. And, uh, you know, he didn't say it very loud, but he kind of whispered in. And I kind of whispered back. I said, UFOs? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, of course. And he turned white as a sheet. Well, how do you know? <laughs> and he, he grabbed me and he said, Migs. And, uh, and then he went, he left. And, uh, and when we landed, I thought he was going to wait for me and we could, chat a little bit but he took off and that to me told me uh, well by the way MIGS was the term used in Blue Book oh. uh, for not just the these Soviet objects right they would use that term as a catch all for as a catch all for yeah. anything they didn't know what it was you know so um, uh, that said a lot to me it really did because I knew this guy very well hmm now, for your own experiences, let's start. Well, you know, I, I was in the Air Force, as we mentioned. Uh, getting into the Air Force Academy, that's not nothing. That's hard. you got to have a recommendation from either your senator or one of your congresspeoples. Mm-hmm. They only get two each. And it's, you know, the academic requirements and physical requirements. It's pretty pretty rigorous. Probably more than West Point, because I think you got to be a little smarter than West Point. <laughs> but how did you get what was the What was the... You know, impetus, like why? Why did you want to get into the Air Force Academy? Well, number one, it was a four-year ride. Uh, I get an education, college education, mm-hmm. and I come came from a poor family. And Where did you grow up? I grew up, uh, it's now called Commerce in Los Angeles, okay. East Los Angeles. It's called Commerce now. But, uh, yeah, we were, uh, you know, it was a struggle. And uh, certainly couldn't afford college. So uh, luckily, my uncle put in a good word for me uh, with Chet Hollifield, who was our representative. And I got an opportunity to compete. He he took names, and we competed for the slot. Um, 
and had to, uh, you know, like you said, physical and mental testing, and uh, and I won. Wow. Uh, actually, I had to do it twice because um, the first time I had a, a polynidal cyst in my backside that had to be surgically removed, uh, so I missed out on the first uh, try, and then uh, the next year I tried again and again won the competition and uh, got the appointment. And it's uh, pretty rigorous. I mean, that's 24-7, especially your first year, right? Absolutely yeah. rigorous, no question. And your goal was to fly, or you were a missile officer. Like, what was the uh, – did you know that going in? No, no. I I wanted to be a pilot, but uh, it didn't work out. Uh, I don't want to go into why right now, but uh, um, I wound up in missiles, um, and uh, that was 1966. I arrived at Malmstrom Air Force Base after about a, a year's training. And in then, eastern Montana, right? Uh, Great Falls, Montana is right about in the center of Montana, but the um, the facilities where we went out to were, uh, at that time, were generally in the east of that, you know. And those were launch facilities. These are not the... Uh, the uh, silos, right? These are different than the silos. Well, uh, we had what's called the launch control facility where I was located, and there were two of us that would go underground in an underground hardened capsule mm. controlling 10 missiles, nuclear missiles. I- ICB- uh, These ICB- are the very first ICBMs, right? The Minuteman? Well, or was there an earlier generation? There was an earlier generation. The Atlas preceded oh, yeah. uh, Atlas missile, but you know it required uh, oxygen, fuel, and fueling, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't a quick deal. Uh, then the Titan, Titan two, Titan one, and Titan two uh, again required liquid fuel, some pretty nasty liquid fuel to uh, to, to fire it. But these were the first uh, instantaneously launched uh, solid propellant uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. Yeah. Uh, so we could launch in seconds. And the Soviets had nothing to counter that, right? At that time, or they? Pro- uh, uh, this was the height of the Cold War, so everything was right. wrapped up in that. Right. This was uh, 66, 67. Uh, the Soviets, I don't think, had a solid fuel missile at that time, but I, I, I'm not sure. So um, you were you had your finger on the trigger, so to speak. <laughs> Actually, I had keys. We had keys. Was it like the double keys? The double keys yeah. had to be turned at the same time. Wow! Did you ever have any uh, frights, or did they do uh, mobility exercises that you had to like run through your procedures? Oh, yeah. We did that all the time. We had to qualify, first qualify, and uh, we had recurring training. And sometimes they sent us to Vandenberg to fire um, tests, uh, test missiles out in the Pacific Range. Yeah, you'll see the rocket launches to this day from Vandenberg. They'll pass Mm -hmm. over here. So tell us about uh, the spring morning of 1967. Okay, and on March 24th, 1967, uh, we were located, it's called Oscar Flight. It's uh, 
again, we had control of 10 missiles. Uh, the launch facilities, you talked about those, where the missiles were actually located in a kind of a ring around this central hub called the Launch Control Center. They were about a mile or two or three away from this hub. And we had security guards upstairs. We had about six guards. Uh, and uh, But our facilities, uh, where I was, uh, uh, underground, 60 feet underground, uh, me and my commander, my commander was Fred Mywald. Uh, and you were a first or second lieutenant? We were both first lieutenants at the time, yeah. Uh, so we took turns taking a nap break because uh, we had to be down there 24 hours yeah. until relieved. Uh, we had a huge blast door that uh, had to be locked at all times until we were went through the relief procedures. So we couldn't just open it and run upstairs, take a look. Uh, we were locked in. Anyway, sometime in the evening, uh, my commander was taking a rest break, and uh, I got a call from the up topside guard, and he said, uh, sir, we've been seeing some strange lights in the sky flying very fast, uh, stopping on a dime, reversing course, making 90-degree turns. He said, sir, they're not airplanes. Now, you knew there was context for UFO sightings in the in, uh you, you're aware that this is something that happens. It's not unprecedented. We were aware that there were reports in the local newspaper, the Great Falls Tribune, mm. um, about farmers seeing a lot of strange lights in the sky. Uh, UFOs were reported. Yeah. So I even, but I didn't really pay much attention to it. Yeah. I certainly didn't believe in it. Uh, and so I kind of made fun of this report. He said, I said, you mean like UFOs? <laughs> he said, well, sir, uh, they're not airplanes, and they're right above us, uh, flying around. They're just these lights. Um, said, okay, well, let me know if something more interesting happens. That uh, seems pretty interesting. <laughs> How's been... it going to get more interesting than that? Well, we're about to find out, I guess. <laughs> So I hung up, and uh, five minutes or so later, he calls back. This time, he's screaming into the phone. He's, uh, uh, I can't even understand what he's saying, and uh, babbling. And uh, finally, calm him down. He said, "There's a bright red, orange light, uh, pulsating light, hovering just above the front gate." And he's got all the guards out with their weapons. Uh, it's silent, uh, uh, and he wanted me to tell him what to do next. Uh, I mean, I was shocked. But uh, this time, I really felt that we were under some sort of an attack. Uh, it felt yeah. like uh, we were under attack. Now, because did he have any sense of the scale, how big this this disc was, this object? I, he said, uh, uh, later on, I uh, queried him, and he, he said it was about 40 to 50 feet long. Or and how far, how far above the... Ground. It was right above the front gate. He Just said, like inches, like right on we're, top. No, of it. We're, we're talking uh, well about twelve to fifteen feet above the ground. Uh, wow. But the front gate is about twelve feet high. Uh, but anyway, uh, he said, uh, I, "I said, uh, make sure you secure the facility. You know, don't let anything." <laughs> 
And if you can help it, uh, you know, I, I don't even remember exactly what I said, except uh, I allowed him to use force if he had to, sure. Uh, because I felt it, it was, it felt like some kind of an attack. But anyway, he said one of my guards got injured. He hung up the phone and, um, I went over to tell my commander is taking a break, uh, and, uh, about the phone calls. And all of a sudden we get these, uh, loud bells and whistles going off. Um, and we both know what that means. It means we're having trouble with our missiles. So we look over at the board. And we have a status board that shows mm-hmm. how the missiles are doing, and they they were normally green. They, they all started popping red, uh, all within seconds. So within a few and seconds, nothing that would ever happen if you were in some kind of an exercise or uh, procedures or you know uh, no. firing sequence or anything. This is just completely anomalous. Absolutely, uh, and they had no control. Up above us uh, on any of this. All the controls and were downstairs in, in our capsule. Uh, so they could So nothing. They could So this is through the hardened bunker. Right. So whatever this object did, and I, I can go into that a little bit, it um, penetrated 60 feet of earth and concrete, penetrated these um, actually about eight or nine inch diameter cables that we had to each missile separately. Uh, a sensitive information network, we called it. Um, it had to penetrate. That was triply shielded, triply shielded against EMI, hmm. electromagnetic interference, and it would have to send a signal. And it did to a particular, Boeing found out later, uh, to a particular piece of hardware called a logic coupler, uh, which is part of the guidance system. So, Which is above ground. No, no. Uh, no, that's the, still uh, inside the bunker. The guidance system is on the missile itself. Oh, gotcha. It's an inertial guidance system. So, yeah, we, we um, uh, put the information in on, on the targeting on the missile itself, and, and when it's launched, it uses uh, gyros at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't have uh, GPS. No. So it would use gyros and uh, accelerometers, things like that, to determine its um, trajectory trajectory you know. and speed, et cetera. Well, it upset this, uh, what we call a stable platform for those gyros, uh, and that had to be oriented a certain way, right? Mm-hmm. Um and it just upset that stable platform, and that's what shut down those missiles. There was no damage done to the hardware, so it didn't fry anything. Uh, it didn't damage the missiles. It didn't damage anything, really. It just sent signals to each of those missiles separately. Separately. Because these missiles were not interconnected in yeah, that way. air-gapped. Yeah. So, to me... This had to be extraterrestrial. You know, of course, I, we, I concluded that fairly quickly. It was not, it was not anything that we could have done. You don't think ourselves. it was some kind of Soviet technology that we didn't know anything about? Did that no. cross your mind? No. Absolutely not. Because you had a good idea what they were capable of. And Absolutely. And like I said, even we were ahead of the Soviets as far as missile Yeah, uh, As we found out later, I remember Kennedy uh, was pounding on the missile gap. And then it turns out that we were 
more than doubled up on them at that time. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the Cold War was quite the political football, that's for sure. Right. Yeah. yeah. All to the benefit of our uh, military-industrial complex. <laughs> so I wonder what was your, how did it go, your reporting it up the chain of command? How did that work? So um, uh, we also... Well, I'm, I'm sorry, how long did this whole incident take from start to finish when they shut down the missile systems till they were operable again? Okay, well, uh, let me get back to the reporting. Uh, we uh, Because as... Uh, some information that was important there. My commander reported to the command post uh, back at Great Falls, and then uh, right after that, he turned to me and said, the same thing happened at another flight of missiles. And I thought he meant that evening, but it turns out later it happened at another facility. And it didn't happen that evening. It happened a week earlier, about eight days earlier. Mm. And that was the you had no no information of that whatsoever. And we no weren't heightened alert. We weren't no. told about any of that. Uh, no, it was it was classified, highly classified. And that was the Echo flight incident. The reason it was classified, uh, and nobody else knew about. It. They didn't even, you know, the crews, the missile crews, were uh, debriefed every morning before we went out on yeah. on our duty about anything going on, uh, uh, you know, any maintenance, any developments or modifications, et cetera. We were never told about the echo flight incident. That happened March 16th. Don't you think that would be useful information to have, just for vigilance, just for heads up? It would have been. But Mm. the reason I later found out after my research uh, is because of the ongoing Condon investigation. Have you heard of the... I have, yeah, which is one of the earlier... Yeah. yeah, 1969, I guess they filed their report. Right. So they were in the thick of it then. They were in the thick of the investigation in uh, 67. So um, the Air Force, uh, which I, again, uh, talk about in my book, uh, colluded with Condon investigators... Uh, not to release this information, and uh, and so that's why it was withheld from the crews. Um, but anyway, within the span of uh, eight days, we lost twenty nuclear missiles to uh, UFOs. Wow! I mean, not necessarily lost, but disoperational. Well, their yeah. function, they were. They yeah, and the functions of uh, these missiles were out of uh, uh, were not operational for about uh, twenty four hours. I'd say maybe a little more. They were offline twenty four hours. Yeah, at offline. both sites. At both sides. Wow! Yeah. So there must have been a lot of hullabaloo going up and down the chain. Absolutely, uh, people from the Strategic Air Command uh, generals and off at Air Force Base. Off at Air Force Base. Yes, thank you, and. Um, uh, came to Malmstrom. Uh, they were seen by many other witnesses, and uh, they interviewed the Echo Flight crew. Uh, we didn't get interviewed because I think uh, uh, they they realized this was a recurring problem, and we got confirmation of that later from other sites besides these two. Yep. So you think, like every system at one time or another, they were probing and jutting down? Uh, just... I don't know those details. The, the only reason I say this is because the 
individual author of the um, re, uh, the quarterly report that went out, uh, a man by the name of David Gamble. He was an airman, but he used to write this quarterly report. Um, and I contacted David and and asked him about the uh, report of UFO, which is in one of one of the documents we received. It said rumors of UFO around Echo Flight, uh, and it said were um, were not true or something. But anyway, I contacted David Gamble, uh, and he said uh, the reports of UFOs uh, was a recurring thing. Now, when you say airman, you mean he's an enlisted man? That's what an airman is, an enlisted man. That's where I started. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with Oh, no, no. I'm just... They do uh, all the work. Absolutely. They're the ones, the boots on the ground. (laughs) Absolutely. I remember I was an enlisted man myself. I came out as an E5. You bet. I can tell you there was no, you know, there was, that's where everything got done. Absolutely. And uh, so I, I, I certainly, he's a very credible guy. Um. Uh, well, let's see. Where were we now? Uh, well, the reporting and the, uh, you know, all that going on. Like the, how long before that you got interviewed? So, um, when we were we were relieved the next morning, uh, and we were flown back to. Uh, were you shaken up, or did you just feel like? I was shaken up. I was definitely shaken up because by then. I was uh, had a million questions. Uh, number one, why weren't we briefed if this yeah. was some kind of an Air Force exercise or something else going on? Yeah. Why weren't we briefed? So I was angry, really, um, because those guys were really shook up upstairs. Yeah. Right? When we went back up. Because uh, the guy got injured. What what happened? Was it in the response? Uh, uh, didn't he t- trying to get out of the vehicle or something? He's... I don't remember. Uh, I read the book, but I can't remember specifically what was that. But it wasn't that he got blasted with a laser. No, he didn't get blasted by the UFO. <laughs> but there was a full panic. It was either yeah, full panic. It was either uh, some uh, something with his rifle may have injured him, uh, or uh, he tried to climb the fence, which is barbed. Oh wire. yeah, that's we what had I barbed remember. wire all, all around. Concertina, concertina wire. So. Um, one of those two things happened. I later later got another letter from another airman who confirmed the fact that he was injured. His hand had injury, had to have yeah. stitches, but they weren't sure why. At any rate, we were taken back to the base and ordered to report to our squadron commander's office. Uh, well, in. just one, this real quick. How many people were uh, above ground that were? About six. Wow. We had about six guards. And by the way, I had to send guards out to two of the launch facilities because we were getting indications of incursion or some entry into those facilities. So I had to send guards out there. And again, they saw UFOs above the size. So we tell them, don't go in, just come back. Uh, but at any rate, uh, we were sent back, ordered to our squadron commander's office, walk in, uh, my squadron commander was an old B-17 pilot, World War II, I'm telling okay. you. Yeah, he'd seen it all. A crusty old vet. A uh, crusty old vet. He was white as a sheet. 
I went right up to him and said, what the hell's going on? Uh, was this some kind of an Air Force exercise? And he said, absolutely not. Uh, we don't know what the hell this is. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that's about the only thing we exchanged. Uh, and then this uh, guy from AFOSI was off in the office, shoved a piece of paper in our face and said, sign here. What is this? Uh, it has very much specifics about our incident uh, and said you are never, ever to speak about it to anyone, especially a guy named Brett. Uh, no, they didn't <laughs> say the that. All the 50-some <laughs> years later. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's true. We had to sign NDAs, and we both did. And so I didn't speak about this. But did they tell you why you were signing these? Did they say that this is just such a... Uh, important uh, that the consequences could be dire. That was there any like reinforcing to you why they needed to have this silence, or was it just all they said was orders? this is now highly classified. I remember mm-hmm. him saying that. Did you have a ent knock? Did you have the um, I forget what that means now, but the higher level of clearance. Yeah, you must have SCI. You I had a special. Uh, it was above top secret because yeah. we had. You know, we had targeting information. We had a lot of uh, heavy-duty yeah, sure. heavy secrets. So, um, and that's what I told him. I said, you know, we're already, uh, uh, you know, sworn to secrecy. Uh, what's the point in, in, in this? He said, sign it. it uh, it's highly classified, and you are not to speak to anyone, not your wife, not your... Anyone in the Air Force. Not your cat. Not your cat. Nobody ever. And if you do, there's wording in there said you will spend time in Leavenworth Prison. Leavenworth Prison was mm. printed on this piece yeah. of paper. Yep, Kansas. <laughs> that would be hell, Kansas in general. But I, I don't understand why there was this. I don't know. I mean... So the Condon report comes out, and as if I recall, I don't remember exactly, this is going back a while, but basically said it's all just a bunch of uh, weird happenstance and uh, unreliable narrators and anomalous phenomenon and the St. Elmo's fire and all the rest of that stuff, that they made a conscious decision to say, that no, nothing to see here, people, moving right along. That's pretty much what they said. Uh, they certainly didn't mention the uh, Echo and Oscar Missile shut down. Incidents. So they left out the ones that were right harder to refute. And they knew about them. Yeah. Believe me, I've got plenty of evidence uh, that their chief investigator knew about the incidents. Uh, the Air Force men who uh, also knew about them lied to the Condon investigators. There was a secret report that's still secret, still out there if... Uh, if Congress wants to go after it, I can point them in the right direction. Yeah, well, you may be called upon. I hope so. Um, but, um, yeah, it was a cover-up. It was an orchestrated cover-up that was uh, designed so that the Air Force would not have to respond publicly to UFO reports, which were becoming more and more of a problem. Especially around these nuclear facilities. Right. Which is what you talk about in your book, which I've never really seen it laid out that way, the, you know, the consequences. Yeah, yeah. 
So it's not by accident they were targeting these nuclear facilities. You think that that was some flip, some switch flipped in whatever was going on with extraterrestrial intelligence that we popped up on their radar kind of thing when when the atom was split? Yes, sir. That's correct. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, in uh, October of um, 2021, uh, I and a couple other witnesses uh, gave a press conference in Washington, D.C. If people want to go to my uh, website, spiralgalaxy.org, spiralgalaxy.org, uh, I think uh, if they go to one of the links on there, talks about UFOs and nukes, you can click on that and you'll see um, our two-hour presentation to the press uh, in 2021. And we start with an incident that happened in 1945 over Hanford Nuclear Facility. Oh, yeah, I've heard about that one because there were many, many witnesses to that one as well. Right. And it happened more than once, but Navy pilots were, uh, were, uh, uh, sent out to intercept UFOs over Hanford, which was producing plutonium for the first yeah, nuclear the, bombs. The heavy, heavy water reactor. Well, plutonium is not heavy water, oh. but, uh, yeah, there, there's also heavy water reactors <laughs> producing nuclear energy, true. But uh, this was um, this happened a couple of times, and uh, we show witnesses talking about it. So, yeah, there's a long history of UFOs uh, involved with nuclear facilities. Uh, uh, we could talk about that all day. Yeah. Well, what about our Soviet counterparts? What kind of a anything leak out about similar incidents on their side of the pond? Well, 1982. They had a UFO come over one of their uh, missile launch facilities and actually uh, uh, unnerved the operators of, or the um, military people there because it started the missile on its launch sequence. Whoa. The countdown? Yeah. Countdown. Uh, they could see it happening on their equipment and uh, powerless to do anything about it, powerless to change it or do anything about it. And it's stopped at the last second. You think they were just checking it out? They were trying to scare them, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we've, uh, people don't know. There's been some real close calls. In fact, there was some fairly low ranking officer in, uh, West, uh, or, uh, somewhere near Vladivostok station that was just got the orders based on some faulty radar information for the launch. And he just refused. He was like, no, I don't just don't, something don't feel right here. I, I heard about that also. Yeah, yeah. It was like in the early eighties yeah. and we were just minutes away from Holocaust, just complete devastation. Right. But this one guy who was outranked by three or four other people on site just said, no, I don't, don't something. Let's wait for further confirmation. And knowing that if it were a true launch, that those U.S. missiles were on their way, that that yeah. was it. That was that would have been too late for retaliation. Right, right. But it's scary. Well, the same thing happened uh, during the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. So we came very close to nuclear wars, you know. Mm. Um, but UFOs were also seen. Um, uh, where was it? In uh, Puerto Rico, there was a, a B-52 base. 
Vieques. Ah, I'm trying to think of where it was. But anyway, UFOs were seen by airmen there uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I don't know if they got involved in that somehow, but uh, stopping nuclear war, people have asked me, you know, with the would they stop a nuclear war? And I have no idea. Uh, let's not find out. Let's not attempt, yeah. attempt it. Right. But I wonder uh, if the bias towards secrecy is well-founded, though. i just wondering. I mean, I'm sure. I wanted to talk a little bit about the sharing of this information. Who gets brought in? Because... You know, Eisenhower famously warned in his final State of the Union about the military-industrial complex and how cozy they were getting with our defense budgets. And it's like a welfare system because it's just a few of their, you know, golf buddies that get these contracts. Uh, and it seems like these people are getting the technology. I'm sure of it. They're gonna, they're gonna be giving them access and opportunity to duplicate this and. Find out what they can. I wonder, maybe there's stuff going on out there right now that they've done that we don't even know about. Well, I don't know if you heard of the Admiral Wilson incident. Uh, let's see, Wilson. Uh, anyway, this Admiral Wilson uh, was a high-level uh, NSA officer, and uh, he wanted to look into contracts being given out on... Uh, let's just say UFO technology, uh, the transfer of that technology. Um, and when he tried to get access, he was stonewalled. And, and this, this guy was deputy, I think it was deputy of the NSA. Yeah. Or if I'm not mistaken, it was the NSA or some high intel agency. And he put up a fuss and uh, was continually stonewalled. So, that shows you the power and this the, cabal of this cabal that they can actually stop a very high-level intel officer from getting the information about these contracts that the government has uh, with uh, various industries. Well, I wonder now. It's been seventy some years. How do they manage the continuity of this? There must be like some kind of a initiation ritual or something like we're going to we're going to show you some stuff's going to blow your mind and you're going to be sworn to secrecy and we've got a little electrode implanted in the back of your neck and if you uh say, say certain words then uh, it's going to explode i just wonder how they're managing to keep well, that under wraps because that's well, like a long time and information likes to get out yeah i think uh, i think threats and fear of and also maybe just the allure of having a secret information. And the allure, yeah. Uh, yeah, I uh, I don't know if I talk, I think I do talk about it in my book. Uh, when the, I think I was try, I was recruited, they attempted to recruit me into this couple. As a man in black, you're going to be one of the men in black. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. did you have men in black visit you uh, after this incident? Or thought they, you know, the that movie, of course, started from, you know, a well-established urban legends about UFO sightings, and then they'll have the men in black show up. And right, yeah, I just wonder uh, what's up with that. You well, know, I wasn't visited by men in black, but they tried to recruit me to be part of this uh, cabal. 
So you think that that's what they're doing, people that have had these witnesses? People that have had these incidents, uh, especially in in the military, uh, they need to have some way of controlling them. And that NDA wasn't enough, obviously, to control me. Yeah, uh, let's another, talk about that because another, I was curious what you had a change of heart. I know you talked about, <laughs> you know, growing realization that Vietnam was was going sideways. And uh, you start you it's like uh, you go through the Air Force Academy, you got like a six year active duty commitment and then another 10 years or something of active something or like uh, inactive reserve. Something like that. And you decided, um, no, this is not my career. Well, uh, we're, we're jumping around here, but uh, <laughs> Let, let, let's go back to um, 1994. So between uh, 67 and 94, I didn't say a word about this to mm-hmm. anyone, not even my wife uh, or wives, actually. This is my second. But um, uh, 1994, I decided to be a school teacher. I was retiring from the Federal Aviation Administration and uh uh, so I went to the University of Washington, going through their bookstore. I ran across a book called Above Top Secret by Timothy Good. Uh, happened to open it up just because I was curious from the title. And uh, happened to turn to page 301, and that's the only, found the only paragraph in the book where it talks about a UFO shutting down missiles in Montana in 1967. Whoa, got hairs on the back of your neck. Whoa, uh, exactly. I jumped up and ran home, and the first thing I did was tell my wife about my incident because I thought, you know, how would he be in this book if it was still secret? Mm. They must have declassified this thing. Because I thought it was my incident. And so I got a hold of somebody at MUFON, uh, Mutual UFO Network, and asked if uh, they could get an investigator to help me file a FOIA request, Freedom of Information Act. And uh, uh, so we did. And I said, don't say anything about UFOs. Just ask them about this incident where uh, these missiles shut down for unknown reasons. Uh, and so the Air Force wrote back and said, you know, this is classified, but since it's been so long, we're going to declassify it. And we're going to send you documents. And they did. And they sent me documents on the Echo Flight incident, which is the one that happened prior to mine. Yeah. But I thought it was mine at the time because— Because it all lined up. Everything lines. lined up. Yeah. Uh, UFOs come over, sh- shut down the entire facility, et cetera. Uh, so it all lined up. Uh, and then uh, I started doing research. Uh, then I came out publicly and said this was a UFO event. I, I went public with that, and I was there, I said. Yeah. I went on the Art Bell show. Coast to coast with Art coast Bell. Coast to coast with Power Art Bell. Rump, Nevada. <laughs> That's right. He's a uh, American institution, that guy. Yes, he was, yeah. And uh, I gave an interview to the Great Falls Tribune, got a front page. And then after that, I, I started getting uh, witnesses coming forward. And, and I started looking for my commander and because, uh, you know, my memories had been <laughs> vanished because uh, I tried despa- I tried deliberately to forget this incident because I couldn't talk about it. Otherwise, I'd spend time in Leavenworth. So... Uh, some of my memories were really faulty and uh, at initially, 
And then I started getting more and more information. Finally got a hold of the commander and deputy commander at Echo Flight when it went down. Then I got a hold of my commander, Fred Mywald, and he was the one that said, we weren't at Echo Flight, we were at Oscar Flight. Hmm. I said, wow. So technically, at that's that when point, you realized there were two incidents. That's when I realized there were two in separate incidents. And I had forgotten what he had told me. You know, the same thing happened. You know, uh, and so I had a quandary. I had a decision to make because now I was in violation technically, and, and yeah. still am. But even though they uh, fulfilled the Freedom of Information Act request, that was isn't for, that kind of letting you off the hook? Then isn't that a signal that this is no longer? That's possible? the way I rationalized it. Yeah, I rationalized it because they did declassify Echo. And just so people know, I'm in the military generally, there's nothing that people love more than that classified stamp. Oh, yeah. The the barrels of (laughs) ink that get used for those stamps, you wouldn't believe. It's like, you know, what what the, uh, you know, the NCEOC had for lunch, that's classified information. And it's just the bias towards secrecy in the military is just staggering. Exactly. It's... Overwhelming. In fact, I write about uh, the excessive endemic secrecy is really one of the main problems that we have in government now in getting things done. But uh, so I had to make a conscious decision that uh, I was in violation of my NDA. But since Echo was so similar and they, I was going to keep talking. So I did. I kept on talking. Any consequences to anybody that stepped up and said, you know, this is no way? No. Because, again, uh, this was 1996 when I found out I was at Oscar. So close to 30 years later. Uh, And then, uh, like I said, I was giving interviews on radio and television, doing uh, documentaries. And now I've spoken all over the world, uh, well, 15 countries and and uh, and so I, I, I think even if the government wanted to come after me for um, uh, not following my NDA, uh, I think um, there would be an outcry. And so they, they haven't yeah. bothered really uh, to uh, try to get me to stop from talking. Well, it might be that you don't have any of the specific information that they're really afraid of, like, you know, how these propulsion drives work or whatever it is. And. And also, I just feel like the cat's out of the bag now. Yeah. They're not going to get that toothpaste back in the tube. Right. I not think, to mix metaphors, but you know what I mean. I do. And I agree with you. I think we're, we're to the point now where, uh, like I, like we said, the, even the Congress is is uh, really after the truth on this and uh, are going to pursue it. So um, I'm very optimistic now that we'll get closer and closer. To the truth. Well, there's something time frame on this for fulfillment on the Schumer proviso that it's like 180 days or something. So whatever, once this, the uh, National Defense Authorization Act gets signed, the clock starts. That's correct. Uh, and all agencies have to uh, produce or uh, declassify, I think, even uh, uh, information they have on the UFO subject and 
and give it over, I guess, either to Arrow or another agency uh, within 30 days, I think, after that. So, yeah. There's going to be a lot of hustling around in the background. Yeah. I wonder what the conversation is in the cabal right now. Well, I'll tell you, the, uh, they've got a lot of things to protect. They're hiding a lot of secrets, including probably things that they've done that are illegal. Yeah. And, well, uh, it's not illegal or if even the president worse. does it. Hmm? Isn't that what Richard Nixon said? It's not illegal if the president does it. Uh, also, that's what Trump says, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's that there's that sense that, well, those those rules apply to other people and that we're, you know— protecting you from yourselves and and uh i i just like really staggered by the revelations that it's all happening so soon i am too uh, i um been working really hard for this day to come uh and it's it seems to be coming uh the where i think we're uh, close to being on that road to, to getting disclosure but you know it's still a, we're just still talking about words in a document uh you do this or do that and or else uh but let's see what we actually uh come up with in the future yeah that's still a question all right bob thank you for coming on that's really an awesome discussion and we'll be checking in follow up because there will be much much more to talk about well thank you brett Brett Bradigan here, just thinking out loud. That conversation really is provocative, and I'm rather, I don't know where I've come down on this issue. I think that there's a weight of evidence from too many credible people for it to be easily dismissed as the field of cracks and crankpots. As you know, Mr. Salas was a distinguished Air Force officer. Anybody that gets through the Air Force Academy has instant credibility as somebody who also served in the military and understands what a distinction that is. I just like trying to figure out, and he does go into it in his book, which, you know, obviously in an hour, we're barely going to be able to scratch the surface. But the book Unidentified, he lays out all the nuclear incidences and the dangers that presents to humanity and also the opportunities. But the interest that these extraterrestrial visitors, or whatever they are, maybe they're just, you know, here with us and they're just a manifestation of the multiverse. Who knows? But there does seem to be some really key connections in that. And I went to, wanted to ask him about Oppenheimer, what he thinks about that film coming out, getting a Chris Nolan treatment. You can imagine it's going to be an outstanding movie. But I feel like we're getting to a point in our history where there's a hinge and I don't know after the revelations depends on how well the cabal as Mr. Salas calls it is able to keep things under wraps <clears throat> but the interest from our elected officials on disclosure and as you know Senator Harry Reid when he was the Senate Majority Leader pushed for disclosures as well <clears throat> I think it's going to get more and more difficult for them to keep it under wraps so we may be sitting on the most momentous story in the history of humanity. And it's going to be no looking back. Anyway, just some food for thought. That's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.